Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Stuart Smith. Stuart is the head teacher of St Mary's Church of England Primary School based in the Selioke area of Birmingham, West Midlands. Stuart, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you, Stuart. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in by taking that word leader aside for a moment and considering that in more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word means to you and how it resonates on the whole. What should a leader be in your eyes? I think it's a question that you constantly revisit when you're um, when you're leading a school because um, as a leader you very much set the the tone for your organisation and and by doing that you you create the conditions for in my case a school to to be as successful as it can be because it's um, it, it's very much about winning the confidence of both the people who you lead but also as well the people who you who you serve and certainly from my perspective I, I very much see my job as a leader here in a primary school in an urban area of Birmingham as, as somebody who is setting the conditions, creating the conditions for every individual in school, whether it be a staff member or whether it be an individual pupil to be able to succeed, um, develop and thrive. And um, as a Church of England school, we've got a Christian character to um, to our offering and we're very, um, very much focused on the values of the um, of, of the school on a day to day basis, and and certainly the values that we have as a school, and we that we encourage our children to develop as personal characteristics, the values that I constantly revisit as um, as a leader on a day to day basis. Um, but I think it's a very important part of the the leadership aspect, aside from the day to day work that I've alluded to. There is very much about trying to see the future. Mm. to try and anticipate what the challenges are likely to be um, 12, 18 months, even further ahead, uh, and to try to begin clearing the path for myself and others in the school to be able to to achieve what we what we want to achieve. So it's, it's very much a combination of modelling the very best of your school at all times, being able to give people the confidence to, to become the, the best they can be but at the same time keeping um, a, a very close eye on what the challenges are likely to be um, in, in, in future months and years. It's always good, of course, to anticipate what those future challenges might be. But one, of course, that we probably didn't see coming around the corner was, of course, the current COVID-19 pandemic that is still ongoing, has been for some time now. Um, how has it been over the last few weeks and months since the lockdown was called at the end of March for you as a primary school to adapt to the challenges of the crisis? Because I can imagine that it has thrown up one or two big issues there as well. Very much so. Yeah, I was, I was reflecting on this only the other the other day when I was in conversation with a colleague where we returned on um, I think it was February the twenty fourth after the February half term, and we did a mid year review of where we were and what we wanted to achieve for the for the next um, not only uh, ne- ne- next six months but the next twelve to eighteen months as well. Um, it seems like a completely different world, if I'm absolutely honest, and seems um, almost of a different uh, of, of different age. I think. Uh, as a leader, uh, I've been head teacher for almost ten years now, and most things that, um, that that you're presented with in terms of challenges have some kind of reference point in the past that you can draw upon, either something that's identical or very similar, or you've you've 
come up with a strategy to deal with a particular issue or, or introduce a particular development in your school that you um, can model um, your knowledge of the past on. Um, not with this. Um, there's, there's, there's no route map. There's no manual. There's um, the word unprecedented has been used um, uh, several um, several times uh, in the outside world and in our own school as well. But there literally is nothing that as a school we could go back on. So what we felt we had to draw upon um, were two distinct things. First of all, the fact that over time we've created a team who are very committed and very de- dedicated to the school, and that's that's a team in all roles, both teaching, leadership, and support staff of various types. Um, and what we've found is the the amount of goodwill and the amount of willingness that's existed for people to jump in and carry out roles that they either haven't done before in the case of teachers um, becoming providers of online learning or with our support staff having to adapt to very different ways of ways of working. And the second aspect was to draw upon the, um, the, the strength of the relationship that we have with our community. And, and by that, I'm thinking specifically of, of families and also um, local schools as well. Um, and these are things that you don't realize you're building up over time. And I think what struck me when I've reflected on, um, on, on where we've where we've been over the last four months is, is mm. the, the fact that we've been able to draw upon those reservoirs of expertise, goodwill, previously good relationships, trust. Um, all of these things aren't always naturally apparent when you're building them on a day-to-day, week-by-week, term-by-term basis. But it, it certainly struck me as being palpable over over recent months. And, and like all other schools, we've had to navigate our way through um, varying scenarios, a very changing picture and, uh, and and having to meet the um, the challenges of continue to function as a um, well in the case at the moment a, a provider of three different services an online provider of people who aren't with us at the moment our core purpose has been an educational provider for those who are with us and um, as a um, as, as a childcare service for um, for critical workers so um, it, it's it's been um, it's been incredibly challenging time an incredibly intense time um, I think. When I look back on my leadership career up until now, I don't think I've ever experienced anything quite like this. Um, but I think overall, the, um, the 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 feeling of contributing to a national effort has been um, has been at the forefront of um, of all of our minds. So mm. I mentioned earlier on that you know, to be able to see the bigger picture as a leader, and and, and that's very important um, in in this context. I think. And in that sort of response effort that you've put in to meet the challenges of this pandemic, just how important a role has mental health and well-being played at the forefront of all of that, not just in terms of that of yourself and your staff in this case, but also of the pupils of the school as well. They have to be considered. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And um, and, and we've been um, putting resources onto our website that have been um, that have been supporting children and families with that. We've been contacting um, families um, throughout the um, throughout the pandemic, um, some more regularly than others, because we've um, we, we, we identified at the very outset children and families who've been we've been working with previously, up until the point of um, of, of lockdown, who we knew would need um, a more intensive degree of support, uh, and also working with um, with partners as well that we've built up relationships with over time, um, who have been able to, to support us in that work and. Um, and I think it's it's um, something that's evolved as we've um, as we've gone along, and we're now in the position where we're able to be carrying out transition meetings um, using various um, online meeting platforms between teachers and um, and their new classes, and uh, and speaking to particular individuals as well. So it's it's a piece of work that, uh, that that's evolved as, um, as as the time has gone along. 
And do you think that some features of the lockdown period and the way that that's affected education, particularly in working practices, more toward that sort of remote delivery kind of thing, do you think that could become a permanent way that the sector ends up operating in future? And I ask that question because when schools do return in earnest in September, pupils aren't going to be going back to the classroom environments that they were used to before, will they? It will be socially distanced. There will be bubbles of students as well that are introduced to keep people from mixing um, within um, bigger groups. So it's going to be an interesting time, isn't it, from that point of view? Very much so, yeah. And we, we've, we've looked at the kind of legacies. Obviously, we don't know how long this is going to, to go on for, but we've looked at the legacy that this will leave behind in terms of changed working practices. And then certainly one thing that we know won't be um, won't be the same any longer will be the way in which we um, we provide homework and and study opportunities for children beyond um, beyond the school gates um, that's it's been a big success of ours we we, we feel and the feedback we've had from from parents has been um, has been highly positive about the um, the work that we've been able to do so we're looking at that um, certainly replacing the, um, the, the the standard homework program that we would have um, we would have been rolling out a few months ago but also as well looking at how that would evolve should we be subject to further lockdowns whether it's a local um, lockdown as, as, as may be the case or whether it's a, a national lockdown looking at how we improve on, on what we're doing we've been trialing a few things around remote teaching with our departing year six pupils in in recent weeks and that's been going very well and that may well be something that's if we're put in a similar position to that, which we've been in for in recent months, we would look to revisit on a larger scale and, and, and just see how feasible it is. Um, I mentioned our characteristics as a church school and, and uh, the act of daily worship is, um, is mm. a pivotal part of of, um, of of what goes on in, in, in our school. And we've um, been looking at ways in which we can develop virtual assemblies by connecting all 14 classes up from September and, and been able to provide the same kind of um, structure and the same kind of rhythm to our worship pattern um, except doing it in a different way and and, and also in, in, in a leadership uh, way as well um, when um, we were rationing our, um, our visit to the school side to senior leaders when the pandemic was, was uh, at what we now know its peak uh, mm. we were meeting virtually and doing the same with governors as well and that's made meetings much more convenient, much more um, focused and, uh, and and therefore much more productive so I think there's a number of things already that are emerging about the way in which we will work both as a as a provider of learning for children, but also as well the way in which we are likely to be functioning as um, as a school for the foreseeable future. And thinking about um, that future, especially um, in the next sort of 12 to 18 months as we adjust to the challenges of the new normal, what do you think is on the horizon for yourself and for St Mary's and what do you really hope to achieve as we return to um, education in earnest from September? Well, I think the first thing we we, um, must do is to reconnect those children that we haven't seen for um, for some time now, particularly in the building with um, with the school and with its values, with its ethos, with its routines, with their friends, with the with the adults who they've come to know and trust over over many years. We've had a a relatively high number of pupils in school throughout the um, the pandemic compared to other local schools simply by virtue of our location. Um, So that rhythm of school has been carrying on for those pupils, but there's a significant number for whom it hasn't. And and, and that's our first piece of work. And we've we've developed um, what we've called a priority curriculum for the the first term, where we are bringing our children back and really focusing on what we feel is, um, is important. And obviously the information we start to elicit about where they are academically and, and socially will will help inform the evolving picture 
I think um, as a school, uh, I think we're going to have to be very agile. I think we're going to have to have a number of contingency plans in place um, in the event um, of the picture changing once more. And I think that agility is going to be um, absolutely essential over the next um, 12 to 18 months so we can respond to whatever we're presented with. When, when lockdown first began at the, um, on, on the 20th of March for schools, um, it was a very frenetic uh, period of time and, and, and it took, um, took us um, a little while to adjust to our new, um, our new world. I think we're much more prepared for that now and we've already put in a lot of contingencies that, um, that we didn't know, um, didn't know about before, um, before March. But our experience has taught us uh, much over recent months and so we, we feel we'll be in a position where we can be as agile as we we possibly can but i think the long-term effects of the pandemic um on children and on families are not yet known um that will play out and again schools i think are going to have to be very responsive to um to what they see before them not only in the first few weeks of september but i i do think that the effects of lockdown and the effects of um of what children have seen and experienced around them um, will begin to emerge and, and will be with us for a long period of time. And again, schools have to be agile in terms of their uh, their provision for pupils and particularly their provision for, for families as well at home. Certainly seems like there's plenty uh, to get your teeth um, into um, going forward then, uh, Stuart, for sure. And, you know, given how informative it's been discussing some of this with you today, I think it would be fantastic to have you back on the show in um, a few months' time just to see how things are getting on uh, once we are adjusting to these challenges. Yeah, very much so. I'll be, uh, I'll, I'll be very glad to, uh, to return. It'll be a real pleasure for myself as well, Stuart, just as it has been having you join us today. And until we do hopefully speak in future, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're still not quite sure which way this pandemic is going to go. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be upward from here. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Stuart Smith speaking, head teacher of St Mary's Church of England Primary School in Sally Oak, Birmingham. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. In fact, during his political career, he became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That's all coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, 
adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. 
and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, 
a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? 
But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future 
in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
we want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.